What makes us take up causes others think are impossible? What draws others to the cause, bonds us together, and gives us an inexhaustible energy and unwavering belief that we'll succeed? I'll draw on my own experiences and talk to fellow champions about the successes, setbacks, and team dynamics that move causes forward. I'm Marvin Stockwell, and welcome to Champions of the Lost Causes. On today's show, Isabel Gonzalez Whitaker, who worked with others to transform an underused Atlanta park into the Sarah J. Gonzalez Memorial Park, a park renamed to honor her mother's work and reflect the inclusive values her mother stood for and instilled in her. We'll talk about how working through grief became a labor of love that drew others to the effort in unexpected ways, and how the park now serves as a community gathering place that recognizes the contributions of Atlanta's Latinx community. All that and more on Champions of the Lost Causes. Isabel, thank you so much for being on Champions of the Lost Causes today. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. You know I've been wanting to do this forever. Yeah, so um, we've, we've been getting to know each other for the last couple of years, and I became really interested in uh, the Sarah J. Gonzalez Memorial Park that uh, you worked so hard to, to make happen. And you know, before we get into the exactly what bells and whistles are in the park and why, uh, if, if you maybe we could back up a, a step and just... Could you talk a little bit about who Sarah Gonzalez was? She's your mom, but but what else? What other roles, important roles, did she play in the community, such that not only did you want to memorialize your mom because she meant so much to you, but she meant so much to other people? Could you just kind of back up a step and what sure. was that like? Well, yes, she was my mother. She was a remarkable woman who came from extraordinarily difficult circumstances and achieved. Um, a version of the American dream that's driven by purpose and success as defined by sticking your neck out for others. She was an immigrant to this country. Uh, she came during the Cuban Revolution with my brother and sister with, you know, no money, two suitcases, the anticipation that they would go back. Um, the family had had death threats by the mm. by the regime. And so the the necessity of fleeing was really paramount for the safety of the family. Um, I think what people don't realize when immigrants come to our shores uh, that they're fleeing one set of traumas and terrible circumstances only to be greeted by another set, right? Mm. Um, there are many wonderful things about this country, but starting over in a new country is never easy. Um, and so she had a difficult go of it, right? And not speaking the language, uh, not being college educated. She was lost for many years um, and just frankly in survival mode, right? And trying to mm -hmm. provide for my brother and sister and, and later for me, I was the firstborn here in the United States. Ultimately, through her own, um, I'd say, uh, dedication to self-betterment and just perseverance, and tenacity, she eventually ascended some really incredible heights in the South, right? So we ended up in Atlanta, Georgia, 
where she opened up a small Cuban restaurant called Cerritos, which was her, the, you know, the, the sort of uh, derivative of her name, Sarah Cerita, uh-huh. um, which is common in, in Latin America, uh, to put the Ita on things. Anywho, uh-huh. so it was a, a cute little Cuban sandwich shop that barely survived for seven years um, on the loyalty of a few customers and one really good review in USA Today. But really, right. she she it took everything from from my family, like financially and emotionally, and she ultimately had to close it. And the closing of that restaurant to her represented um, a frustration and a reflection of the lack of resources that are often, or at least, look, we're talking in the 1980s, right? Things are better now. Uh, that were available to people that didn't know how to navigate n- navigate bureaucracy or start businesses. Um, and that set her on a path of, uh, I'd say, social entrepreneurship, because she then was like, well, if this is happening to me, and I'm getting taken advantage of, and I'm, you know, losing my skin in this game, mm-hmm. uh, because I'm not well prepared, and I don't have uh, the resources available to me, or I can't find them, it must be happening to a lot of other immigrants. And so she started um, working for a local nonprofit called the Latin American Association uh, to help sort of new families and, you know, the diaspora of Latin America and Mexico was such that there was starting to become an influx into the southeastern United States um, in a way that had only been previously um I guess, experienced in California and Texas and sort of the more known regions, mm-hmm. Miami and, and the Northeast, New York. But the South was really starting to have this um, impressive population growth um, with Latinos. And so this social services organization was there to, to help these families and these people um, learn how to integrate themselves into a new world, essentially. And this was something, obviously, that she knew firsthand and that she was extremely passionate mm-hmm. about. And as it turned out, she was really good at fundraising and marketing. And she helped mm-hmm. to create um, this nonprofit's uh, stamp in Georgia um, in a way that it then pinged her to the Olympics, which were coming in 1996. So she was then tapped to be a liaison for the Latino community um, in the sort of build out of the Olympics and working for the IOC um, in that capacity, which then propelled her to be tapped to run the very nascent at the time. uh, It was called the Atlanta Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and she subsequently grew it to the Georgia Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And that was really the ultimate intersection of her passion around um, helping new communities establish their foothold in new places through economic empowerment and and betterment. Um, And so when she passed in 2008, she had really left an indelible mark uh, financially on the landscape of the Southeast, but also on individuals. And when she died, the pivot point for me was at at her memorial, the church was packed with thousands of people I didn't know, um, Latinos mostly. And they would come up to me, they came up to me and and in Spanish would say, you know, your mother was an angel. She helped me so much. You know, I, I, she set me on a path of success and just firmament, right. Um, That can be so elusive to people that are coming to this country for the first time. And at the time I was at InStyle in New York as an editor 
and sort of had been looking for causes and looking for mm. meaning in my life beyond my day to day. And something clicked in me. Two things I left that memorial with was I'm going to do something to memorialize her and dedicate her, dedicate to her in perpetuity that it's an extension of her legacy. And my definition of success changed. It was no longer the fancy bags, the fancy shoes, the expensive dinners in New York. I mean, all things that I had strived for growing up, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, certainly not like with a silver spoon in my mouth, um, you know, and I'd worked really hard toward, but now I, I wanted more than ever to honor her, um, contributions to this country, um, by also embodying them myself, myself. Wow. Well, she had uh, obviously kind of inculcated in you these, these lessons and, and it was almost like you, you, the pivot point was when you realized, gosh, they really resonated with me and they're, they're deep down in there and Mm -hmm. it's time to live them out more fully. That's really, that's really gratifying to kind of hear you unpack that. Um, now you, you, you also were, um, your mother's death was unexpected, right? Correct. So, and, and you were were especially close to your mother. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about how, about how this not only started to satisfy you on a deep level in terms of continuing something that you know your mom would be proud of you mm-hmm. for doing, not that she wasn't proud about all those fancy <laughs> bags and being in New York, but I'm sure she was. But um, can you talk a little bit about how that process of working on the park mm-hmm. uh, started to be your way to also grieve your mother's loss? Yes. And I mean, it was completely a selfish act at first. I mean, I knew I wanted to honor her legacy, but it was also for me to stay connected to her. I wasn't ready to say goodbye. And I do think in this country, mourning is a is still a, a very difficult thing for people to accept, to talk about. I remember sort of wanting to be identified by my sense of loss and every conversation I'd open up with, you know, I just lost my mom and it would make people very uncomfortable. Um, But I didn't know how to process, right? Like I think, I don't think this country prepares you for tragic loss um, in a way that makes it comfortable Mm -hmm. for all people. So, uh, for me, this park was sort of like a quiet connection that I could maintain to her, maintain with her, to her, for her, Mm -hmm. um, that was a salve um, at a time when I needed to still be embraced by her, by her spirit and by her memory. Um, And it was a, you know, a, a silver lining to a very tragic outcome at that at that moment because it was an unexpected death and um and it was a loss for the community and a loss for the family and and I do like to say that what what became of this park which is dedicated to her um as embodying themes of diversity and inclusion and equity and what I like to call experiential symmetry it also has her name, right? And for me, that representation was really important because it um, immortalizes her um, in a way that people will walk by that park and not necessarily know who Sarah Gonzalez is, but they'll know that Gonzalez, inclusive of the accent over the A, is a Latino name. And therefore, we have a um, sort of permanent imprint in the tapestry of Georgia um, that became very important to me symbolically, uh, as well as 
very realistically in terms of, of what that meant to the community. Mm-hmm. How did you go from the kind of thematic level thinking, what were my mom's values? What were the values that were instilled in me? What values do I want to see folded forward in this park so that others can can walk through them literally and experience and know that they're connected to your mom? How did you move from that thematic level to the kind of like blocking and tackling of deciding what goes where yeah. and then how to go stitch it all together? How did that work? Well, first of all, I think it helps that we're and you, you you can relate to this, we're journalists, right? Yeah. So we're good storytellers. And or I like to think we're good storytellers. I, at least we recognize stories. Um, and I knew... You're a good storyteller. <laughs> well, I knew that, thank you. I knew that this park needed to have meaning and story behind it, just because that's how I navigate the world. And that's mm-hmm. what I respond to. This was not going to just be another green space, um, which was exciting because I thought, well, what can I do with this space to elevate it beyond the traditional? Now, narrowing down her values was a very interesting exercise. And coinciding with the establishment of the park and a real growth moment in the park was me becoming a presidential leadership scholar. Mm. And this was um, a a real inflection point in my life. Uh, That's when I moved from New York to Memphis. The timing was perfect. It's a program that was established by the Clinton uh, both Bush and Johnson uh, presidential centers, mm-hmm. and they identify 60 social impact leaders annually, and they cultivate um, and help them g- grow through the lens of presidential uh, learnings uh, specific to the social impact projects that, they, that they're working on. And I had at that point established the park, but the park was still a clean slate, and I didn't know mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you make a park? How do you how do you create something with meaning, something that touches people, that resonates, that has a story? And one of the most important exercises that we did was sort of this value establishment um, curriculum that looked at our values and helped us determine what values were important to us. And then I sort of took that exercise and I applied it onto my mom and her life. And I established four tenets. And these are the principles or the the core values of the park, which are family, Um because that was paramount to her and she sacrificed everything for her family, namely her three children. Um, Dignity, because I think injustice, injustice, not injustice, one word, in in the action of justice, there is dignity. Um, Unity, which is is another way of saying inclusion, and diversity. Mm -hmm. So this park... um, at a time when this country, too, remember the election, uh, Trump coming into power, you know, was going through its own real moment of tension around embrace of diversity mm-hmm. and the and the values of what diversity can bring to, uh, or rather, the benefits that diversity can, can bring mm-hmm. to to society. Um, I doubled down on it. You know, I, mm. I double, I doubled down on this idea that this park was going to be about um, radical inclusion and, and, and radical equality um, and accessibility for all. And I've often said that parks are, are, are completely um, inclusive institutions, right? Because thank goodness we live in a country where people are not, um, Everybody has access to a park, right? Like parks are by nature, by design, non-discriminatory. So it was nice to build on that precept, um, these values, build on that foundation of 
of sort of this all all access platform for the celebration and honoring of inclusion, diversity, equity, family, dignity. Yeah, it, it's um in the 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 evolution of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. You know, dates back to well, I'm sorry, farther back than I than I realized, but like. You know, I remember the first time that became, you know, diversity training was a thing back in the like 80s or 90s or whatever. And it was very, it was uh, in often in many settings was was very surface. And now I feel like uh, in the last 10 years, it started to, to have more form and substance to it. Uh, and when you, you can put real weight on it, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. you, like you, you actually, it becomes enfleshed, if you will. Uh, in my own cause-based work around stuff around the, the Mid-South Coliseum and, and, and Memphis's fairgrounds, um, the diversity, uh, both economic and racial, uh, and uh, with of the neighborhoods around the fairgrounds is, uh, is, is everything from wealthy to, to poor, and everybody loves the fairgrounds, and it's, it feels like it's their, you know, green space. Um, and so to, to be working on a project like that where those issues come to the, to the fore— um, our, the Coliseum coalition board worked to as, as hard, diligently as we could to make sure that our board was inclusive. And we, I have gotten to know over the last few years, uh, one of our board members, Angela Barksdale, she's an early sixties, African-American woman from orange mound. And she is a dynamite leader. Uh, and she has a way and she has a Rolodex of people and ends with certain political figures that we as white people do not have. And I see her flex her muscle and get us places that are good. And I think to myself, I'm seeing lived out the, 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 the old mantra, there's strength in our diversity in a way that's not some like, well, you know, you know, it's not mm-hmm. some throwaway uh, uh, phrase from the way it was maybe in yesteryear. Yeah. And so, it's 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 great to hear you talk about how you folded those things forward and made them embodied in the park. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, uh, what you what you've experienced? What are some of the features of the park that really press into those themes? And 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 I know that there are some really colorful characters behind some of the people and the reason that that certain amenities are in, in mm-hmm. the park. Absolutely, and, and to your point just now one of the things that my mother always used to say which i didn't understand for a long time um growing up wanting to assimilate let's say i'm you know growing up in atlanta as a very in a very marginalized community Mm -hmm. and often being the only latina in a room but she used to say that our our diversity was an asset it wasn't a liability right and our and our and our ability to speak two languages was an asset, not a liability. You know, mm. that we were, as a community, an asset, not a liability. And she was right. she was saying that before it was sort of popular to say yeah. that. And uh, and I'm glad she did. And it, it really speaks to sort of her uh, her core beliefs in and values around inclusion um, and the celebration of diversity that created a platform for her as a spokesperson for that movement mm-hmm. um, before anybody else was sort of on that bandwagon. Um, so the park, to the point of extending out those values, um, yes, we wanted to make sure that it was 
as inclusive as possible. So um, that meant, for example, making sure it was wheelchair accessible, right? Um, ADA compliant in terms of access, making sure that the playground equipment had um, had playscapes for all children, right? Children that uh, with, with limited abilities, um, to children uh, who who needed uh, more tactile things to play with for whatever any number of reasons, right? And I there's a picture that I have of the park that somebody just happened to be walking by, and there's a a family there with a with a very special needs child, and it just oh, makes wow. me so happy. And this child oh, is in true. a wheelchair and can actually navigate the playscape, and that sort of embodies to me. Um, this idea of always keeping inclusion at the forefront of when you're doing design. Um, additionally, we wanted a, a community, like a shared community space um, where people could sit and gather, um, which ultimately will have a, uh, an artwork piece that I'm still to, to be determined. It's uh-huh. sort of the capstone project that I'm, that's like, I don't know, phase 10 of all the phases, but I envision this beautiful piece of artwork. And the reason why I want a beautiful piece of artwork, if not more, um, celebrating our culture and our heritage, and I want it to be world-class because for this particular community where the park is, and and it's a legacy Hispanic community, um, it's it's a little bit more uh, gentrified now than it was as is everything in in town Atlanta. Sure. Uh, but this idea that you, and this is when I speak to experimental, experiential symmetry, the things that exist um, innately or, or by nature in privileged neighborhoods should also exist in neighborhoods that are under-resourced. And so to have a world-class art sculpture in a sort of uh, a neighborhood where that would not be expected, first of all, normalizes the expectation around beauty in neighborhoods right. that are under-resourced. And then it also doesn't, it, it it makes it accessible so that the children see a beautiful piece of artwork without having to be bused to the museum. Right. So that's my goal for that space. Uh, more to your point, we have a wonderful learning nook. So I used to see um, when I was doing sort of like recognizance, um, and trying to really determine what the community needs are, because it, far be it from me to go in and be like, here's what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to do it. As I was raising money and sort of, you know, working um, in tandem with various stakeholders um, to to establish the, the amenities of the park, there was a teacher who would come from one of the little elementary schools and set up his dinghy metal table and folding chairs every day after school to extend tutoring to the neighborhood kids, Um, you know, mostly ESOL, things like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Jose, you are a saint for doing this. Thank you Mm -hmm. so much. But this, the optics of this is also what keeps us down as a community, Mm -hmm. because the community normalizes that this is the best that they can do. A metal dinged up chair and folding, t- folding, uh, metal dinged up table and folding chairs, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and furthermore, the people that drive by with resources see it, and then they normalize that expectation for our community. So I said, I'm going to build you something beautiful where you can have intentional learning that is a safe space mm-hmm. that normalizes an elevated sense of what our community deserves. And that we don't get traditionally just because we live on the wrong side of the tracks, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so we did. So I went to Georgia Power Foundation and got a beautiful grant, and I thank them a lot. And we have a beautiful pergola that's shaded with seating for 20, wheelchair accessible, a table that's got electric outlets for, you know, plugging in your devices. And that's where those lessons now take place. And uh, there's a there's a plaque on it dedicated to Jose Osorio. And, uh, and I, I'm, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on what it says, but it's like, I think it says it only takes one to believe. And it's in Spanish yeah. and English. And it's just beautiful. And, and that is representative of the equity that I'm trying to bring through the features in the park. Mm-hmm. Um, we also... Uh, during the duration of of sort of the establishment of the amenities, um, the first Latino police officer, um, Officer Edgar Flores, was shot and killed um, in the line of duty. Very young man, very dedicated to education, very dedicated to not just his community, but just bettering all communities, really believed in this idea of service to people. Mm -hmm. And we knew we wanted to build a community garden because, in fact, in one of the apartment complexes nearby, the uh, landlords had prohibited people from growing, um, like, edible foods, Mm. you know, jalapenos, whatever, mint, outside their stoops. Um, You know, I guess they considered it a nuisance or an eyesore. Mm. Uh, And I was like, okay, well, I will build you a community garden where you can have these, you know, Latin ethno botanical fruits and vegetables accessible to you Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that, you know, you don't have to worry about, you know, bringing them indoors at night because they're going to get thrown away. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is just food. This, and you know, at the time this area was in a food desert too. So it's like, I mean, really serving a need here. Right. So, um, so we decided as we were building out this community garden, which is very small, but but it, it's sufficient for the neighborhood to dedicate it to Officer Flores, whose last name in Spanish means flowers. Right. And so um, to, to know that this park now has the first Latin ethnobotanical garden in Atlanta, and we do that in partnership with the University of Georgia because they actually have a, a whole... Uh, agro botanical industry there that's oh, cool. with a focus yeah. on 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 Latin American um, uh, food and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, is this idea that this is now a beautiful memorial to another Latino who meant so much to the community, um, and this is the first memorial for a fallen Latino police officer. Mm-hmm. So the park starts to the, the meaning and the 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 emotional depth of the park starts to really gain you know get get hold of you because yeah. of what it represents for the community. Um, when was the park dedicated in your mom's memory? And then when was the, when the other parts come on? Yeah, everything came together. We did the naming of the park way back right after she died. We were able to get that through within a year of her passing. Um, I had to, you know, in, get a bunch of stakeholders mm-hmm. engaged. And I mean, I didn't know anything about a park. You know, that was really the starting for you. Yeah, that was the start. You know, I came back from that memorial and I said, okay, I'm going to, 
And in fact, what I wanted to do first was get like a highway named after her (laughs) (laughs) because that's all I had seen, right? Like, you know, Jimmy Carter Boulevard or whatever, Ambassador Young Freeway. I didn't know. And so, you know, I called people that I knew in Atlanta that my mother had engaged in the political spectrum and said, you know, we got to get a road named after her. We got to get something. And uh, this wonderful man, uh, the commissioner, uh, Rob Pitt, said to me, you know, it's really hard to get highways and roads named after people. It's going to take a really long time. And also, there are like certain laws, like, you know, for certain areas, like you have to be deceased for 50 years, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. It's bureaucratic. He's like, how about a park? And I was like, yes, because... That is the soul of my mother. She loved nature. She loved trees. She loved butterflies. She loved birds. And she loved children playing, right? Like she wanted to preserve innocence for children for as long as possible. Um, So I was like, yes. Okay, what do I do next? He's like, let me see what parks are available. So apparently this is a thing. And I encourage anybody uh, in pursuit of lost causes and um, interest in extending legacies there are parks and green spaces available for renaming. It takes a little bit of, you know, rigmarole and political navigation, uh-huh. but they're there for the, for the taking. And if you don't take yeah. them, you know, a business will, or, you know, if representation is important to you as it was for me, I was like, oh, this is a thing. This is perfect yeah. because I wanted people to drive by green space and see my mother's name. So at the time there were two parks available in the entire city of Atlanta, one was like way out by the airport I had no connection to. And one was this little half acre park in the neighborhood where I grew up across the street from my parents' Cuban restaurant. That Get out of here. That's awesome. Right? Oh, that's super Crazy. Yeah. It was named Coronet Way because that was the street it was on. And, and it was just perfect because I was like, okay, well, I'm living in New York. I can't like... I, I need a small park. I don't need Shelby Farms, mm-hmm. and and I can do a lot with it, right? Like I can, I can, you know, which is what I've done. Like you know, there's no stone unturned there. Like yeah. you know, and I still want to do more, um, so I could manage it, and it was available. And uh, and then you know, I mean, of course, it takes a certain amount of letter writing and um, you know, a, a community and stakeholder buy-in, mm-hmm. but that wasn't difficult. My mother had earned a lot of equity in the city. And people rallied around it. And I think as people look to causes and impact, for me at least, when the ball started rolling, it started to roll fast. And it was, I didn't have to fight for this. This was something that came, you know, the park was available. The right people were in place to help me usher it along. I remember I said, I can only dedicate 20 minutes a week that's all I have. Like I was mourning, you know, I was also going through like some personal issues, trying to start a family, you know, I had a really demanding job, but I knew like, you know, I'd probably read somewhere, like just take incremental steps and eventually the, you know, a big project will get done. And I was like, okay, I'll do 20 minutes a week. And that's literally how it started for like three months. I would just like send emails for 20 minutes a week until, you know, things started to build momentum and, you know, and then, it started to happen. And so that was ultimately wow. how the park was renamed. And then I sat on it for a little while because um, I had to focus on some other things. I lost my brother six months after my mother mm-hmm. died. Mm-hmm. It was a really rough time. And so I said, okay, well, I've got step one. And then I really needed to like raise money 
and do things. And then, you know, and that, and I just had faith that that time was going to come. And sure enough, a few years later, um, conversations started happening again. I started to put it out into the universe. Like I'm ready to start cultivating this park and making it more. I mean, I was going down and doing flower plantings and, you know, cleaning it up. But I mean, this was a really rundown park with, mm-hmm. I don't even know if it had, I can't remember if it had one swing, you know, like it was not, one of city of Atlanta's better parks. Mm -hmm. So I knew that there was potential and I needed to turn my attention toward it. So it took a few years. So finally everything was inaugurated in 2018, 18 or 19. I can't even remember. So um, yeah, 2018, you know, the mayor was there and it was a big deal and we had all these features and it spoke to the story of the park's values and to my mom's journey. Wow. You know, uh, as soon as I came up with the name Champions of the Lost Causes, the very next thought that came to me was the lost causes aren't lost because we found them. Mm-hmm. You know, we more than it's, it's one person. It's the action of one. And it's almost like the old Christopher saying it's better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. And you took a first step, but then you, you kind of like you lit that, that one candle. Right. And then Mm -hmm. others were drawn to it. They saw that kind of beacon in the sky and they thought, yes, we need to do this. So, and and, and, you know, a further evolution of that kind of like tagline, if you will, you know, uh, the lost causes aren't lost because we found them. Now we found each other. Oh, and, that's beautiful. And I, and I think to myself that that's really what your story was, is like you had to take action. You took action because of values that had been instilled in you, values that you knew were important to you in ways that all of a sudden came to the fore in your life. And you wanted to to, 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 to memorialize your mom by by and, and honor her in perpetuity. Um, but But... Could you talk a little bit about like when you said you put that out in the universe and conversations began? Can you talk about some of the other uh, forces that align that like kind of out of nowhere, you just like, boom, I'm having these conversations <laughs> with these people. How did that materialize out of the ether? How did that work? Um, well, you know, the park, I think people started to get curious about the park. What is the Sarah J. Gonzalez park? And I'd also... Um, you know, her name, because of the work she had done in Atlanta, had maintained some um, some relevance and some visibility. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I mean, the biggest the biggest thing that happened was that a, a a developer called me, and in this neighborhood where there had been a food there had been no grocery store and had been a food desert, was going to build a, a, a grocery store. And he said, what is this park across the street from this like abandoned shopping center, which is where they ultimately put the grocery store. And I told him the story and I said, and I sure could use your help if you want to help it make, you know, help make it something special. And, uh, and they did. And so that was the beginning of raising money and then working in tandem with um, an amazing organization called Park Pride which is a nonprofit that is sort of the link between, I'd say, um, city entities around green spaces and nonprofits and funding, right? So they sort of provide, um, they're the middleman, right? Between like, okay, let's say you want to adopt a park, but you don't have resources. They can sort of help guide you there. They can provide resources. They can um, help you cultivate a vision plan, things like that. And so Park Pride became my, my primary like sponsor slash partner in this effort. Um, you know, from everything from like, you know, how to uh, redo a park one Oh one 
Mm-hmm. And then the city of Atlanta Parks and Rec. So I, I started to develop these relationships with people that um, all of them recognized the value that a park like this would bring. Also in redefining what a park can be and what a green space can be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think one of the most important events that we held there, which was, you know, sort of uh, not something I ever planned, but it, it worked out is during one of the border crises. I can't remember which one because there have been so many. Um, uh, this was, uh, I think, when families were being, children were being separated mm-hmm. from their families and mm-hmm. there was some really horrible yeah. things. And I felt this very strong impulse to have a uh, candlelight vigil, uh, an ecumenical sort of mm-hmm. uh, non-denominational invite everybody like, can we please just collectively pray to whoever we want to pray to? And it drew a lot of leaders in the community. Mm-hmm. And one of them at the time, um, I think it was a, uh, an Episcopalian, I, I can't remember, or maybe it was the rabbi. They all spoke and they all said beautiful things. And, you know, we drew a crowd of probably 100 or 200. And we did a sunrise service with candles. Wow. Um, and it was a very, and this park has like a hundred year old oak trees and it's really just really beautiful in the mornings. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, this is sacred ground. You know, this, this, this park meaning has transcended its location because of the significance of my mother's life. And also the fact that it's historic in being the first in Georgia. And so it created, um, I guess, a gravitas Mm -hmm. to the park significance that then resonated with various stakeholders, business people, potential partners who wanted to sort of be part of that narrative. And I've, I've been lucky that I've been able to be selective with whom I, you know, who I want to bring in. Um, And the needs aren't great, right? Like I'm not raising millions of dollars yet. (laughs) You know, I don't know how much my art sculpture is going to cost. You said world-class art. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, But you know, it's been, it's been nice to be able to sort of do it in a in a very authentic and bespoke manner, yeah. Uh, in terms of like f- creating and and solidifying the support around this park. Wow, um, you know, a lot of people t- when they talk about uh, equity and, and access, and then a, a term that I've heard kind of come along in the last little bit, uh, kind of in the same breath as food deserts are like, mm-hmm. they don't call them park deserts, but they talk, but there have been studies that have mm-hmm. shown that proximity to green space uh, is a determinant of, of health, emotional health, physical mm-hmm. health um, was uh, it's, 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 it, you know, the, you had the choice between the park way out by the airport that probably wouldn't have been very walkable or, or bikeable or very accessible. Uh, and then one right in your neighborhood, where close to where you grew up, across from where your mom's restaurant was. That's just, that's too much. But I mean, could you talk a little bit about like, like what kind of foot traffic does this park get? A lot, a lot. I'd say that there are, um, well, because it borders three uh, sort of immigrant heavy uh, housing areas, mm-hmm. Um now it also, because it is gentrifying, borders a very high-end um, apartment complex or condo complex, and then some houses, right? Like this is on the edge of Buckhead, which is like a very fancy neighborhood, but this is also um, borders like on your way almost to downtown Atlanta. So it's it's this very transitional urban landscape. 
um, mm-hmm. that happens to have trees and this cute little park. It, but yeah, it's very, it's that park is so well used that I'm now in the process of applying for yet another grant to repair this mini soccer field that we built. Oh yeah. Um, that's half the size of a traditional soccer field. It's just like a mini pitch. Um, because, you know, we wanted to provide again, this idea of social determinants of health, you know, uh, uh, and obviously soccer is a cultural touchstone for mm-hmm. us, a soccer field. So we have a permanent goal where people can kind of do pickup games, but they get so used that I can't keep the, the grass seated. And oh, so wow. I'm actually now trying to get some, like some semi astroturf anyway, but yeah, I mean, the park is very much used and it's also used in different ways too. Um, you know, I thought it wasn't going to be used at all during the pandemic. Like I was really worried. I was like, Oh, you know, we were just building momentum around impact mm-hmm. and, um, and cultivating the community. We had done like a literacy event. We had done a bunch of like smaller one-offs and then the pandemic hit. So I think for a time in Atlanta, maybe, and maybe here too, I can't remember they closed parks, right? Cause they, mm-hmm. nobody knew Anywho. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but eventually they started opening up again and the park, um, because of the trust that it had, um, earned from the community and because it had become sort of this sacred ground for the Hispanic community, the mayor's office of immigrant affairs approached me and said, can we start doing food distributions there for those three, uh, communities nearby? Mm -hmm. And so all through the pandemic, they fed 400 families a week with um, very curated uh, food options that were also, you know, food and, and, and things that were endemic to our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still ongoing. So now they're biweekly. Yeah. They also did um, because these are these are yeah, look, I mean, the job losses for the Latino community outpaced the national average. Mm-hmm. Uh, women suffered, Latino women suffered disproportionately, uh, you know, because we were, we were in those frontline jobs. Uh, we don't have health insurance in our community because of any number of reasons, you know. So everything was colluding such that COVID was really taking a toll on brown and black communities across the United States. Like, mm-hmm. that's a well-known fact. And so to be able to help them at the park through food distributions, through eviction awareness um, mm. and eviction sort of, uh, preparedness sessions. Um, there was also a lot around, you know, we, we had some pretty big elections in Georgia, so we did a lot around voter registration. Um, and now we're doing vaccinations. Like we're helping to be part of the, the vaccination yeah. outreach in that community because of the earned trust that we have with the Latinos in the neighborhood. And, um, and, you know, I feel like that's, that's all my mother would have ever wanted. Well, yeah, how proud she must be. Mm-hmm. That's 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 really cool. All right, so I've been kind of saying yeah, yeah, like I know what you're talking about, <laughs> and that's because uh, this past summer on and on we were taking a family vacation down to Florida, meeting up with other family members, and we stopped in Atlanta because I, I, by golly, I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna. That is so visit beautiful to me. You're gonna make me cry. Holy yeah. moly! Well, and and I love Atlanta, so like you didn't have to twist my arm too much to to want to stop over in Atlanta, but we stopped. And what's funny is like, uh, you know, my wife, Sarah, was on, was on board to, to stop at, at a park. We, we love parks. Uh, but our kids, 
uh, our oldest two, our daughters, are, are teenagers now. And they were a little bit like, uh, we have to go to the car. You know, it's like, yeah, don't you want to like break up the monotony and like breathe the fresh air straight off the plants? And, and, uh, and, and my oldest daughter, Genevieve, uh, loves parks and green spaces and, and just is really at home in the, in the outdoors. And <clears throat> so we stopped and, uh, it's a gorgeous park it, and it is, um, and you talk about the, the, the old trees the, and, and we, we got there in the morning too. And the light that was coming through the trees at that time of the morning, and it hadn't quite, quite gotten hot yet. And all of a sudden our kids are just like, playing on the stuff, climbing on the stuff, running around like Did you see the affirmations maniacs. in the stone? Oh yeah. You yeah, are yeah. you are beautiful, you are strong, you belong. Yeah. I tried to we tried to embed, I mean that credit goes to the to the designer Patrick Han for embedding so much meaningfulness and even yeah. this this circuitousness i don't even know if that's the right word but it the, is now thank you <laughs> <laughs> the circular path like i he intuited my mother used to wear a lot of necklaces and when we were designing the the walkways of the park he intuited that there should be no rigid corners Mm. Which is also a very Latin, like you go to Latin American parks, like everything is circular and round and even in so much art, right? Like it's a a curvature country, a curvature culture, I guess, for lack of a better word. And you'll notice that the pathways are all like S-shaped and like it's, it lends itself to a slower pace um, and more integrated into nature. But yeah, and and that there's a berm. I think it's called a berm. Anyway, it's a raised foundation by the playground. I don't know if you noticed, but he made it in the shape of Cuba. Oh no, I did not notice that. Yeah. See, now I got to go back. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that that your older kids, ultimate, you know, sometimes there's skateboarders there. They're cool kids that go oh, there yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, and my son, my son dug it too. You know, my son's uh, our son's just about to turn 11, so he was he was running around uh, with with the best of them. And, 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 and you mentioned food distribution. There, there was a food distribution going on when we walked up in the middle of the day on a weekday. They were probably um, setting up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, very useful park, uh, and, and fulfilling on the things that, that you saw a, a need for. Um, so what's, what's next for the park other than raising money for a really world-class piece of art? What's next for the park and, uh, and, and what, what would you say have been your kind of like take home points now that you've come this far from 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 your mom's f- funeral and your grief process and naming the park and then now building it out and being here kind of toward the tail end of at least the build out and you're already seeing this community trust come about this this authenticity uh this credibility uh that's got to be heartening. I have to I have to imagine. Could you talk a little bit about like what the projects meant to you, and and, and what else needs to be done um, uh, to to really have it be all that you want it to be? Wow, um, such a great question. Um, the park has obviously delivered on this idea of being more than just a green space, right? Like I didn't just, I I knew I wanted to take it beyond just like the renaming of a sign. So it's delivered on this concept of valuing the tenants on which it was built around equity and inclusion. It's reconnected me to the community um, in a way that I love being proximate to. And I think it's important to be proximate. 
uh, emotionally, spiritually to this community. It, it provides me with a sense of purpose um, and fulfillment. I've, I've also had the most amazing relationship come out of this endeavor. And that is with the, a young woman named Sophia Bork, who is essentially me, but in Atlanta. And she's, um, she's Colombian. And we met because she was working for a bank. And I was actually like, sort of hitting her up for money for the park. And you know, we were having that conversation. And I said, you know, I really want to build a community garden. And she looked at me and she said, I'm really into agro urban agriculture. And I'm like, do you want to build a park? Cause I'm, you know, at the time I think I was still living in New York. I was like, I mean, do you want to build a community garden? She's like, yes, I totally do. And she just ran with it. And, um, and, and she's now sort of my, you know, she's, uh, my, my partner in all things of the park. And, you know, where there's an age difference between us. And I think it's beautiful to sort of see the intergenerational, mm relationship uh, that has blossomed over our shared desire in providing impact for this community through this green space. And, um, you know, it's not her mother's name on the park, but she takes so much pride in it as if it were. Um, And especially also the Officer Flores Garden, which she really fully established and drove. Um, So that is like something that I didn't anticipate you know i mm-hmm. like to have that sort of friendship and that partnership around a cause that also makes endeavoring for the cause easier right like to yeah. share that responsibility so i i really owe a lot to her but um you know and i'm, I'm a fellow now for an organization for a think tank called encore which is all about driving change through intergenerational mm-hmm. connections and I feel like she and I embody that yeah. uh, fully um, what's possible and how I can take sort of my, she's, she's in communications too, but like how we guide each other through our respective worlds colluding for the benefit of impact through the park. Wow. You know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, when you think, when I think about, and as I've talked to other people in the podcast, and you think about how does a group of people championing a specific cause uh, come together? And it's, it's, it's almost like they're summoned. Not, a, not everyone is summoned at the right, at the, at the outset. Uh, although that initial kind of grouping, they're these kind of, they kind of wind up at the same airport gate and they've got their, they've got their ticket, right? And it's like, I'm at the gate at the right time. Totally. Um, whereas other people are going to meet you at your Denver layover, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and it's like those people are drawn because you've lit that light. And that light is that beacon and it draws other people who also find a way for it to have meaning in their own lives. Completely. And I just, I just, I see how that, that's, and sometimes it's like the group that's convened just kind of like, yeah, you don't want to say automatically because you don't want to like rule out the fact that you can have a completely left brain idea about diversity on your board that you want to work really hard and you cultivate people intentionally. But sometimes it just happens, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot about this park that's happened like that. That's That makes me feel like it's a little bit otherworldly. I mean, I always also, you know, in addition to the fact that the park that was available for renaming was literally across the street that I played in when I was a kid. And that was like literally across the street from my parents' restaurant, which, you know, set my mother's second and third chapters of life in motion. Um I remember Patrick was, we were trying to figure out some of the stones that we wanted to use. 
And he's like, I've got this really beautiful marbleized limestone. And limestone's important to me because Cuba is basically a limestone island. Mm-hmm. And he was like, it's called Cecilia Stone. Does that mean anything to you? And I was like, oh, my gosh, that was my mother's mother's name. Like, Get out. You know, like, just like, yeah, look, coincidences, whatever. I, I just think that there's a lot. There's a spiritualness that, sure. that, that happens at this park, for me at least, that feels very predestined. And, um, and I, you know, I try to observe it and acknowledge it. And certainly embrace it. I feel very, very blessed that it's come together as well as it has. And it's a responsibility. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's like a second full-time job. Sure. Um, and with the pandemic, it's been very hard for me to get down there as much as I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is why I'm grateful for people like Sophia, who's about to, for Hispanic Heritage Month this month coming up. You know, she's going to have a, a literacy event during one of the food distributions, reading to kids in Spanish and English. Oh, cool. um, Giving away books, you know, like the, there's momentum that happens at the park, which is what I always wanted. Like I wanted the community to adopt the park as their own so that I don't always have to be the impetus. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's happening. And so that gives me comfort, but I'm also, I'll never let it go. So I'll always want to be you know, I, I have to touch it. And, you know, whenever sure. I go, I'm always picking up trash and litter and, you know, sending pictures to Patrick. Can we get better soil here? Or, yeah. you know, things so like it's that. an active effort. Um, so beyond just the fundraising for art, uh, there's the programming end. Mm-hmm. Now, it, does the park have a uh, a staff or, or, or is it is it all volunteers? It's or? all volunteers. We have like very committed, uh, friends group, which is mm. ba- basically, you know, and people come and go, right? Like people have busy lives, but there's a, there's a loose friends group of committed neighbors, um, and, and stakeholders, you know, through park pride that we come together, you know, to do mm-hmm. efforts, um, both proactively and reactively. Um, you know, for example, the, the interfaith vigils that we've had, you know, that was, that was reactive. Um, but we will do proactive cleanups once a quarter, you know, with a church Mm -hmm. or with a school group. Um, and all these people make that possible, especially because I'm not there. Right. You know, sometimes, um, the impetus to, to champion a cause is to uh, is because there's a crisis point. Something's reached a crisis point, and you have to respond. Other times, there's, uh, and I would argue this is the case here. There was an opportunity that you didn't want to squander, uh, and I feel like people who champion causes uh, have to have respect for their their current peers that live that are living now. They have to care about the people who are going to live a hundred years from now, 500 years, a thousand years from now, people who will build on what you gain, but they also have to have that respect for what came before. Uh, and it's almost like you stand on those people's shoulders. Right. Uh, and, and when I look at, at your cause, I just think to myself, this is an opportunity that was like, it was right there. All the variables were just like, so percolating, right. And they really just needed a change agent like you to enter the picture and, and stitch it together. I have to, I have to believe that that I, I know even from from this interview that 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 it's been personally meaningful for you. But to to get a sense that you've grown something that is also that meaningful to others, and it, it's it's kind of it has a life of its own now, doesn't it? Yes, which is which is really what I wanted from the beginning. You know, I wanted to create something that could sustain itself because you know I'm not going to be around forever, and I, and I don't know if my son's going to want to inherit the responsibility of this, right? So yeah. 
I just hope that in the while I'm here that I can sort of share the story of my mother and share the meaningfulness of this park with enough people mm-hmm. and provide enough um, interest in engagement in the park that that people will always be invested in this little jewel. Yeah. Where can people learn more about the Sarah J. Gonzalez Memorial Park? Oh, they can go to www.sarahjgonzalezpark.org. You can reach me there. You can look at some of the events that we've held, learn a little bit about the history of the park. Um, And then I have a Facebook group. It's the Friends of Sarah J. Gonzalez Park, where we always put like and promote our events that are upcoming. Um, And yeah, always accepting donations and and. Thankfully, through Park Pride, I've been able to make sure that as those don't, you know, they're, they are the 501c3 fiscal partner. So, like, mm-hmm. I'm just like, write the check to Park Pride. They make sure I get it. And then we disperse it, you know, for the programming, for maintenance, and for any number of projects like me trying to figure out how do I make sure that this soccer pitch stays viable forever. Right. Um well, is there anything that I might not have known to ask that you'd want to comment on? Gosh, um, about the park or anything else about yeah, because but you're you are a you have an, an eclectic mix of things in your life that 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 uh, yeah, we didn't talk about space goes coast to coast. <laughs> <laughs> but we're all, those who know you are are are. are know that you have your hands in a lot of different things and 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 the world is better for it oh Uh, that's really um, nice of you i mean i think one of the things that i've that's changed me also through this park is that this park put me on a new path professionally right mm, like mm. i was i i was interested in finding more meaning i loved my job i was I was the features editor at InStyle for many years. Before that, I was at Teen People. And, you know, I'd written for a time, New York Times, great outlets. I was also then the deputy editor of Billboard, really fun job. Uh, but I was looking for more. And I, uh-huh. you know, and, and, and this park showed me that I could have community impact, right? I think the work that we do as journalists always has some impact Mm -hmm. but you're a little sometimes you're a little distant from it Mm -hmm. um you know when you're on the ground doing a park cleanup you know what impact you're having or when you inaugurate Mm -hmm. an all abilities playscape you know what impact you're having immediately so it's i like to sort of um be able to live in both of those worlds um of like, you know, on the ground impact and then sort of hopefully some macro impact with the with the jobs that I do, which still include journalism. Um, but now more than ever with more sense of meaning. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Isabel. Thanks for listening. Champions of the Lost Causes is a production of the Back to the Light podcast network. I'm your host, Marvin Stockwell. Produced by Ryan Azada, with production assistance by J.D. Rieger. Logo and design by Collins Dillard. Music by Ryan Azada. If you like the show, please follow, rate, and review us on your favorite platform. Keep up with the latest at championsofthelostcauses.org.
part of the Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.